Welcome. This is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. And our guest today is Mirza Uden, Head of Business Development at Injective Labs. Welcome, Mirza. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. Um, so I guess we should actually first start by saying we're in New York, and we're not usually in New York. So thank you for having us in your wonderful city. You're very welcome. <laughs> okay, so t- tell me your like crypto origin story. Like, How did you fall down the rabbit hole? Yeah, this is actually quite interesting. Um, I started back in 2013. I was actually in high school, and I was mining Bitcoin with a couple friends of mine. Um, unfortunately, I sold all my Bitcoin at $100. So that was my crypto origin story in 2013. Uh, because it went from like $8 to $100 pretty quickly. Um, and that was a lot of money. That's for, a respectable for, return for, yeah, for anyone old, who yeah, didn't yeah. invest in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say I really got my start when I went off to Tokyo uh, my freshman summer. I was working at a firm called East Ventures. And they were investing into a lot of early stage uh, altcoins like Omisigo and other sort of payments focused uh, protocols. Um, and that was when I was like, okay, I'm probably going to be here a while. Um, later started focusing exclusively on crypto investments at a place called Two Sigma Ventures. Um, they're largely known as a hedge fund, but they have a ventures practice. And t- in the beginning of 2017, crypto was starting to get pretty hot. Um, so every single VC, both in New York and in Silicon Valley, wanted someone to focus on crypto. And I was that someone at Two Sigma because no one else pretty much wanted to do that. They wanted to do like AI and VR and AR. And I was like, no, crypto is pretty cool. Um, and really fell down the rabbit hole then. Uh, I would say that's when I was like, okay, this is probably going to be my career. Um, invested in a bunch of cool companies like UMA and also became an LP and placeholder, uh, which is a pretty big venture fund um, in crypto now. And around this time, one of my really good friends, um, Eric, who's now the CEO of Injective, was thinking about building Injective. He's like, hey, I want to build a DEX. Um, I, I think these centralized platforms won't last forever. And this is way before like, you know, SOP or anything major even existed. Um, so I thought it was a little early. I didn't actually end up joining until 2020, uh, but uh, over time I became more and more sold on the idea as I saw the trend shift from 2018 to 2020 um, and ended up joining Injective full-time, headed up the business team there. Uh, when I joined, there were about three others on the team, and right now we are 44 people with our HQ in New York and um, some smaller regional hubs in places like China and Hong Kong. So, yeah. So, so just going back then a little bit, because, I mean, you were in that VC space for, for quite a while. Yeah. Did you, were you weighing up the balances in your head? Was it like, maybe VC is actually just a, a safer or like more interesting route and crypto's not ready for that yet? Or like, how yeah. did you decide to go into VC and how did you decide to make that jump into yeah. crypto? I would say that transition was pretty easy for me because in VC, it's pretty fun for the first few months or the first year or so. But after a while, it's just you're listening to a lot of great founders pitch and all you're doing is writing like a quick investment memo and deciding to invest. And that's it. You, But it always seemed to me like on the other side, it was more fun. I now understand that it's not just fun. It's usually very hectic. But I wanted to know what that's like. So I kind of wanted to jump in personally because, yes, it seemed like VC was the very safe route. And also, at the time when I was in VC, uh, most people weren't really investing into these higher-risk token-based projects or these DeFi protocols, really. They were doing more equity plays, right? Like, safer bets, like finance or investing into FTX or investing into Fireblocks. These were not things I was personally interested in. Um, I really thought most uh, crypto protocols would bring the most value to this ecosystem. So how do I get more involved with the cr- protocol layer itself? So 
that was my sort of journey in terms of deciding and weighing my options. And when, when you were talking to your, your friend Eric about Injective and, yeah. and his vision for, you know, decentralized exchanges being the future and, you know, centralized exchanges won't be around forever. Yeah. I mean, what was guiding that vision and, and what made you buy into that? Because, I mean, centralized yeah. exchanges are still quite yeah, know, they're dominant. dominant so yeah. But you still believe DEXs yeah. are the future. I mean, it's... We believe clear. it because it goes in line with the entire ethos of crypto. Because once you think about like what Bitcoin, the, from the genesis, it was meant to take away power and disintermediate power, right? But it almost seems like um, centralized exchanges are a half measure where it's like, okay, we have these really great protocols um, building really cool decentralized technologies, not beholden to the government, not beholden to centralized big banks or players. Um, but now you have these things and these behemoths like centralized exchanges where a couple big powerful individuals that are worth tens of billions of dollars are still controlling, quote unquote, this decentralized network, right? So that didn't sit right with me. So from an ethos perspective, I believe that if more and more people start to believe in the vision of crypto, sooner or later, that will also be disintermediated um, in terms of, okay, now we have like a decentralized asset, we should probably trade this on decentralized platforms, right? That just seemed like the next logical step for me. Um, and it, there wasn't much evidence when I joined. It was just more of an ethos and play. But right after I joined Injective is when a lot of DEXs started taking off and a lot more volume started coming onto DEXs. Um, I think even at Injective, we've now done about $6 billion in volume in the last three months. And if you had told me that like two years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Because back then, even Uniswap was maybe doing like $20,000 a day, right? Which is like nothing. Binance probably does that every second. Um, so that's why I think the tides are sort of shifting. I do think uh, that centralized exchanges will continue to be the dominant player for some time. Like you can't just like take away power from Binance or FTX, they're just too big now. Um, but I think there's a middle ground. I think there's a middle ground where certain assets and uh, certain uh, players only trade on DEXs and certain assets are only traded on centralized exchanges. I think that's going to be like the safe, happy medium here. A natural bifurcation that yeah. people find what camp they, they belong to. Exactly. So talk to me a little bit more about the injective protocol and the, and the blockchain yeah. itself. Because So you operate um, a tendermint-based proof-of-stake consensus mechanism. Yeah. Some of our listeners will be like, oh, yeah, of course, obviously. <laughs> and others will be like, what? So yeah. walk me through that. What does that mean? Okay, so... Um, a proof-of-stake network, uh, said very briefly, and I'm sure most listeners know what a proof-of-stake network is, just means based on the amount of stake you have, you are able to secure the network. So let's say someone has 30% of tokens within a network, they're able to have 30% authority over that network in terms of implementing protocol-level changes and validating which block goes next. Tendermint is a specific version of proof-of-stake uh, consensus. So it was first uh, divide, like the first use case for Tenement consensus was the Cosmos blockchain. And since then, a lot of other chains such as um, Terra and Crypto.com have taken on this consensus mechanism. Um, because one, it's it has a lot of cool features that traditional proof of stake chains don't have. Uh, for example, it has this thing called instant finality, um, which means that as soon as a transaction is sent, um, the block is finalized instantly. There's no issue in terms of like congestion or the blocks getting halted or the chain halting. It's like, okay, this transaction is final. We all approve it. Let's go. Um, that's kind of how it works. So it makes a lot of things, especially uh, use cases like decentralized exchanges, much more effective. Because think about a scenario if you're just on a typical proof of stake chain and you send through a trade and the, the validators don't know whether or not to validate that block. And then your entire trading activity just halts. 
Um, and this has happened a lot on other chains, other proof of stake based chains. But uh, tenement based consensus means no, this will never happen. Um, and the other reason we went through this Cosmos SDK based approach where we used like a software development kit to build our own custom modules um, is because it just gives you more optionality to build a chain for your use case, right? So there are a lot of general purpose chains out there. I would say, let's say Solana or um, let's say Avalanche, these are general purpose chains, meaning that they are chains built so that people can build any type of dApp on them. Cosmos SDK is a very special use case where it's like, no, we don't think like every single chain needs to do everything. Um, there should be use case specific chains. So for example, Terra is a use case specific chain for their stablecoin. Uh, Injective wanted to build a use case specific chain for decentralized exchanges because when we were looking through our options, like, hey, do we build this on Avalanche? Do we build this on Ethereum? We're like, no, we should probably build a use case specific chain because there's a lot of issues that will arise, like trades not going through, um, maybe or, uh, people uh, manipulating orders. And this is a huge issue on Uniswap today where people can do this thing called front running, uh, where you just pay more in gas fees and your transaction will be processed before someone else's. Um, but you can avoid these issues uh, on Injective. So those are some of the ways that um, we thought about when we were picking the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint consensus. And those are generally the benefits, like the optionality to recap and just having things like instant finality on, on the chain. Uh, do you look ahead at other proof of stake chains or chains that are gonna move to proof of stake yeah. somewhat famously this year as potential uh, like threats because they might have a more dominance already or is no. it just because they're too broad use case and Injective was created for almost like a singular purpose that that will continue to be its raison d'etre and, and yeah. define? No, yeah, of course, we're just talking about the ETH merge. So the ETH is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. So we always wanted to be as ETH native as possible. So one of the first things we did was build a native bridge from Ethereum to Injective. Um, and we even built in special supports where you won't need to download a separate wallet. You can just use MetaMask, you can use your Ethereum compatible wallets because we still think Ethereum is going to be the dominant player. We don't think that mindshare goes away. But just because Ethereum moves to proof of stake doesn't mean a lot of their issues will be solved. Like maybe gas fees will go down a little bit, maybe their transaction speeds go up a little bit, but the demand for Ethereum is just too high. There are too many tens of thousands of developers building really sophisticated dApps, and it's just not sustainable to have it built on one network. So I think you'll see a flourishing ecosystem of both L2 networks, like let's say Optimism or Arbitrum, and also Ethereum scaling solutions, like if you deem Polygon to be a scaling solution, if you deem Injective to be another scaling solution. And we're really going down this approach. It's like, hey, we wanna be a liquidity hub for the DEX layer, so for the DEX use case. Um, so we want to interoperate with both Ethereum, with Cosmos, with Terra, because there are great developers and great amounts of capital in all these ecosystems, but the liquidity and the mindshare right now is too fragmented. Like if someone's on Terra, they're just on Terra. They're not really accessing Ethereum and vice versa, right? So how can we bring and plug in this ecosystem more so it becomes more like Web2, right? Like it would suck if you sort of had, let's say Facebook.com and you could only use it on Safari. Like what about your Google Chrome users? So I definitely see a world where dApps can interoperate and like plug into different chains. Um, and that's really what we're trying to solve for. How far away do you think that is? Because I mean, this whole ecosystem like DeFi itself, yeah. it has evolved in what, two years basically. Yeah. So in terms of uh, an interoperability, there's gonna be winners and losers. Yeah. You know, how long do you think does it take for this ecosystem to mature? And, and what are maybe gonna be the driving forces that get it there? Yeah, very good question. Um, 
I, I wish I had a crystal ball, but <laughs> if I had to, we'd predict, all invest in it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I had to predict, I think um, we're at least two to five years away from like very robust interoperability. We're kind of there right now with wrap tokens, with bridges, but a lot of issues pervade the ecosystem. Like you've probably seen all these hacks, like Ronin was just hacked the other day. Wormhole was hacked a couple months ago. Um, and this dissuades a lot of retail investors from coming back. And two, it, it is not yet robust enough, right? So these systems, like you would never think about Bank of America suddenly losing like a billion dollars, right? And never be able to get it back. So these things need to be solved for first. And two, we need a layer to allow for the native tokens to be transferred and the native NFTs, whatever you're trading, let's say. Because right now what's happening is a lot of people, let's say, are on Solana and if they wanna come back to ETH, they're having to wrap those tokens and bring it to Ethereum, which means like you might have like a billion dollars in Ethereum on Solana and like $10 billion in Ethereum on Ethereum. Um, but what if we could just have an aggregated pool because you didn't have to wrap tokens anymore? Um, there are a couple of cool protocols working on this, uh, Layer Zero, Nomad, Axlar, a few others um, that are trying to make sure that native tokens can be transferred. And that's a big thing for us internally. And that's what Cosmos IDC currently does, right? So interoperability exists within niche ecosystems. Like for example, right now, if you wanted to transfer Luna, which is on Terra to Injective, you'll get native Luna. It's not a wrapped token. Um, but that only works within Cosmos, like Terra, Cosmos, Injective, we can do it, but it won't work with like Ethereum and Solana. So it requires a few driving forces. One, uh, the industry needs to coalesce and stop competing and just think like, hey, we can all thrive because I think there's like this notion that, hey, we're like, and this is not me singling out any chain, so I'm just gonna say X. Uh, so, hey, I'm X chain, like we wanna be an ETH killer. So we're gonna build our own platform and build everything ETH already has. But what if instead the narrative was, hey, ETH already does these cool things. We want to focus on these other cool things. Let's find a way for ETH tokens to work on our network. Like if people started with that mechanism, they would no longer try to build like this moat around their business from day one where it's like, oh, we don't want ETH people here or hey, we don't want Solana people on our platform. Um, so there needs to be coalescing among the teams to build systems that can interoperate from day one and two, there needs to be better security protocols because a lot of people build a lot of cool stuff in this space, uh, but just one attack or one vulnerability ruins it all and just ruins the network. So we just need to invest a bit more time into those aspects rather than sort of rushing to deployment. Um, so I think those two things are necessary. And like three, of course, like I think um, a lot of protocols right now are just focused on copying Ethereum, uh, which I don't like. Like you'll see like 100 forks of Uniswap on every single chain or EVM chain, but why is that needed? Like why do you need really 10 really smart people working to build Aave on 10 different platforms? Like why can't there just be one Aave and you just work on some other cool aspect? I think that needs to be a model as well, rather than like everyone just trying to fork and make a quick buck. So I think those are gonna be the driving forces. Uh, in your show and tell segment for us, you talked a lot about the, the growth of the derivatives market. Yeah. Um, can we just expand on that here a little bit and you know uh, give us a refresher on what you said in the video? Um, and for our listeners, if you haven't seen it, please go on our YouTube channel and you can check it out. Um, but let's explore some of the, the drivers for that growth in the derivatives market and wh what impact has that had specifically for Injective? Yeah, for sure. So a uh, couple of big drivers for the derivatives market. One was that derivatives weren't really available. 
uh, for crypto traders before. Um, only recently have they become available, largely popularized by BitMEX and their perpetual futures options, right? Um, because perpetuals were very interesting because if you think about a traditional futures contract, they have an expiration date. Perpetuals just said, hey, there's not gonna be an expiration date. And then FTX obviously took on the mantle as BitMEX started going down, and then a lot of centralized platforms like Binance, et cetera, started offering these products. Um, so one was they weren't available before and now they are. And two, and I think the real driving force is that a lot of institutional players are now coming in and joining crypto. Um, you think about big players like Jump, you think about big players um, even, even from traditional hedge funds, right? Citadel, et cetera. These are the giant market makers that are driving most volume on platforms like Robinhood, but they're not, they weren't really participating in crypto before. But now their ventures teams, their internal like trading teams are all participating. And they're more likely to trade perpetuals and these more sophisticated derivatives products rather than just spot, just because it gives them more flexibility. Um, there's, there's better hedging optionality when you have derivatives. If you think about in 2020, the entire crypto volume per quarter, I think the chart was saying was $2 trillion on a monthly basis. Um, but in 2021, it almost eclipsed 10 trillion, right? So, and that was in the span of one year, like at 5X, right? And the ratio started getting more and more fair. So the ratio became more 50% spot, 50% derivatives, whereas before it was probably very lopsided where it was like only 10% derivatives. Um, and you'll see this ratio get better and better over time as more of these institutions come on board. It'll definitely take some time. We don't just need crypto institutions. Like I'm not just talking about the Alamedas of the world. I'm talking about real like let's say the two sigmas of the world or the citadels of the world or the tower researchers of the world, like guys who are driving trillions of dollars in volume, these guys need to plug into crypto because that's where the volume is driven from in traditional equity and derivatives markets. What's it gonna take for them to have a bit more comfort? I'm, gu I'm guessing like regs obviously, but yeah. but what else, right? Because it's, it's yeah. such a complicated space that, Agreed. Um, you know, so many of these complex products that you talk about are only really gonna be useful to institutions like that who know how to trade them and know how to make money out of it. Whereas it's still almost a retail dominated space, I think. Yeah, no, very much so. It especially, yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and I think a couple of things. One is we need gated uh, networks, especially within um, decentralized finance. So an institution will never really trade until they have sufficient clarity like, hey, people are being KYC'd, et cetera. Because on the other side, a terrorist might be trading, right? And they don't wanna interact with terrorists. So one good aspect is a lot of DEXs and decentralized platforms in general are building out gated networks where it's like, okay, this pool is going to be KYC'd. So you know exactly who you're interacting with. So that is the number one thing when I talk to institutions that they want, like more KYC, more security, because then they pass compliance. And number two is just OPSEC and security, right? So what they're really afraid of and the reason they're not deploying billions of dollars in capital is because they're like, what if we get hacked, right? So when you get rid of that issue, if you have safeguards in place, let's say things like insurance or things like, oh, okay, we will reimburse you or really show them robust security measures that you've taken, then they'll be become more and more comfortable. It's just a compliance issue and a security issue. If you solve for those, they are very, very interested in trading crypto from every single conversation I've had. And they, I mean, with the security that exists now in yeah. some places, and obviously I'll give a shout out to Copper here, um, but you know, these processes, the, the business offering procedures wrapped yeah. around the technology itself, 
it's it's there. It just needs to be better understood or better implemented, uh, and then I guess sanctioned better by by regulators. Is that? Do you think what we have in right now is enough, or we still need more? I think what we have right now is enough for a lot of players that are looking to do take on more risk. Um, like let's say Jump Capital, even a couple of years ago, wasn't really trading crypto, but they are willing to take on more risk, so they'll come on. But let's say Bridgewaters of the world are traditionally very risk averse, so they are likely not going to come on board with just this. Um, I think it's almost like a um, a chicken and egg problem sometimes because it's like, okay, you need they're just waiting for more and more institutions to come on because they're just watching because Citadel right now might be like, oh, this other person is doing it, we need to do it, or Bridgewater might be saying the same. Um, so everyone's just waiting for those first movers. So once you convince a couple people, um, the rest sort of follows. And I think that's what largely drove, let's say, like the mini bull run we had in 2021, et cetera, because a lot of people were just waiting on the sidelines and they, when they saw guys like Ray Dalio, et cetera, starting to buy Bitcoin, they're like, hey, we should probably get in on this. Um, so I think it, it comes in a few stages. I think the first stage is family offices because they are willing to take on the most risk. Uh, they have less like issues with taking on risk. And two, it comes from like the more risk, uh, like people who want to take on more risk, like traditional funds. And lastly, you'll have the slow movers, like the Bridgewaters of the world, right? Um, that takes a little bit of time. So I think to answer your question, I think we have what it takes. It's just a matter of time because we need to convince these earlier players first and then the funnel will sort of follow. So what's the next big thing on the agenda for Injective Labs? What yeah. What are you working on? Yeah, yeah. So a huge thing for us is building out a really robust smart contracts layer, like a permissionless smart contracts layer on top of Injective. So right now what we have is a really robust chain uh, on which you can build really nice DEXs. But we think for you to build a true ecosystem, you need to have other things like, let's say, savings or lending on the protocol itself so that people can hedge better, people can save better, like the money can stay within the Injective chain. Um, and it allows us to become more of a liquidity hub. So that smart contract layer is live on the testnet. Um, it should be live on mainnet by this quarter. So that's a huge thing for us. And the second part is building not just one smart contract layer, but a dual smart contract layer by the end of this year. So the one we're building right now is called Cosmosm. It's very native to Cosmos. Um, people like Terra, et cetera, all use it. Anchor Protocol, et cetera, all are deployed on Cosmosm, which is great, but it's a little niche because a lot of activity is still on EVM-based chains. So what we think is valuable is if you have a dual layer where you onboard a lot of Ethereum native devs on the Ethereum layer on the or the EVM layer, um, and they over time transition over to this Wasm layer because both Polkadot and a lot of others believe that Wasm is the future. It's much more robust compared to EVM, um, but it takes time for people to transition. So having a dual model can ideally help people transition better. And does that help also with the interoperability we were talking about earlier? Is that gearing towards that future? Exactly. So that that's top of mind for us. Um, and that's why we built using the Cosmos SDK from day one, because we really believed in this vision. We didn't know if there was going to be one winner. And now it's become really apparent that there won't be one winner take all market, especially when it comes to blockchains. There needs to be some uh, features that allows people to interoperate better um, and create a more vibrant ecosystem generally. So, yeah. I think there's... Um Conspicuous in its absence is the the Bitcoin blockchain that <laughs> I mean you haven't yeah, mentioned yeah. it once. I mean, right? Stacks so is working on something, right? That's the only one I know. Um, I mean, it's hard, right? Like when Bitcoin came out, it was just really early. Like the Bitcoin devs weren't thinking, like, hey, there's going to be like these uh, very 
intelligent smart contracts building and we have all these devs on it they, they were just trying to build a currency right and over time it became less of a currency more of like a reserve um i don't think bitcoin is natively built for building applications right whereas like the blockchains ever since ethereum really inspired this new way of like you know blockchain should be more for applications which i think is fine not every blockchain has to be like ethereum i think that's like the wrong way to think about it. Like it's totally fine if Bitcoin just becomes digital gold. Like they do not need 50 different dApps built on the Bitcoin network. Um, one thing that's very important though is because of the dominance of Bitcoin, it's very important for new chains, like even if it's Ethereum or Avalanche or what, whatever have you, to bring native Bitcoin if possible onto those networks because most retail traders on like learn about crypto through Bitcoin. Um, and if you leave out Bitcoin, you're only going to engage a very niche DeFi audience that might be more ETH native or more like Solana native. But to get most of the market, you need Bitcoin compatibility. And it's not even like the, the retail users who come in and just learn about Bitcoin in the first yeah. instance. It's the institutional people too, yeah. right? I mean, that's their gateway drug into, into yeah. crypto. So. Yeah. Cool. Um, Mirza, this has been really interesting. We have a bunch of questions we ask everyone, if you don't mind just yeah. running through them with us. They're supposed to be snapshot, but... Most people take a, a little bit to think about. That's cool. Um, so where do you see the DeFi industry in one year versus 10 years? In one year, from a market size perspective, I think DeFi will be 2x larger than it is today. Uh, but I think over the next 10 years, you'll see exponential growth. Right now, I think we've only scratched the surface where we see very, very basic primitives, like, oh, like very basic lending, very basic like exchanges. Mm -hmm. But when you bring on the level of sophistication that a bank can actually provide, like all of those features, um, that's when DeFi really takes off and when the institutional players actually feel comfortable that they can trade large volumes. Because right now, the liquidity is not even there on DeFi, right? For big institutions to even move a couple billion dollars daily. Like, mm -hmm. it's maybe, at best, maybe they can do a couple billion. Um, so I think there's going to be a huge surge when one, um, the ETH merge happens um, and things get more compatible with one another. There's less of this war for space and authority and it's like, okay, let's work together and build an ecosystem. And two, when people actually start building more sophisticated products catering towards institutions um, and not just like these very simple forks of basic primitives. Um, so that's my prediction. I think a, not a lot will change in the next year. I think it might go 2x uh, in terms of like an overall market size, but in the next 10 years, I have hope that they will innovate and this will be the dominant narrative for crypto, is, which is DeFi. If you could change one thing about the industry, let's yeah. say crypto industry as a whole, what mm -hmm. would you change? I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but like, yeah, just like this constant thinking that everyone's competing with each other. Um, that's number one. Like, I, I just think crypto's so nascent and there's so much space for everyone to grow. I think if that would just stop and if people would just stop promoting their own opinions on Twitter and just come together and say, no, like, I do not have to put down Ethereum to bring myself up or vice versa, um, I think the community would benefit a lot. Is there one piece of technology in your life you couldn't live without? Um, my wine cooler. Definitely necessary, yeah. Um, what does your weekend look like if you get time off? It basically means I'm probably just doing some research in crypto or like watching Netflix like or doing both at the same time. 
getting into the wine cooler. Yeah, wine cooler, NFTs, crypto, and Netflix. I think <laughs> that's good. That sounds like a series on Netflix yeah. already. Yeah. <laughs> um, what movie can you watch over and over again and never get tired of? Yeah, uh, it's called Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio. And Tom Probably. Hanks, yeah. Yeah, and Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? Frank Abagnale? Yes. Oh, cool. Uh, do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? No. <laughs> Wag me. <laughs> GM, actually. GM. Yeah. <laughs> um, who should we all follow on Twitter? How many people do you follow on Twitter? You, you probably, probably follow like thousands. No, what, I don't follow that. Yeah, I don't follow that many people okay. at all. Okay, so one of 60 people. There's 60 people at least you can recommend. I don't know. Follow my CEO, at Eric Injective. There you go. There we go. <laughs> the PC answer. What was the last thing that surprised you? The last thing that surprised me? In crypto or like life? Both, either, whatever. Uh, did you guys hear that the planes no longer require you to wear masks? That was huge. Yes. Yeah. Was just like two days ago. Yeah, I flew yeah. in two days ago. Yeah. It was glorious. No yeah, masks. Yeah. You no longer have to wear them. Pretty huge. You still have to wear them on subway stations in New York, so that kind of sucks, but yeah. It, it We're getting there. The, the long-haul flights without a mask are definitely good. Okay, um, who's the next guest we should have on our show? You guys should probably talk to Joe Kwan. I think he's a pretty interesting person, uh, especially because he's been buying up a bunch of Bitcoin. So it would be interesting to see how he plans on bringing Bitcoin to the masses. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. Cool. Last question. If you somehow managed to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask him one question, yeah, what would it be? Uh, why did you not sell? Yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone kind of knows who he is, and he's dead. It's Hal Finney. He died of cancer in, in his 30s, yeah. That's, That's actually why the, the wallet hasn't moved in a decade. How long ago was that? Pretty sad. Uh, he basically died like a year after he made Bitcoin or conceived of the idea, yeah. Is, is this going to be one of those things that becomes like conspiracy lore because it can't be proven, but everyone knows but doesn't everyone know? Everyone knows, yeah. Yeah. Everyone kind of knows. Does Craig Wright know? Oh, yeah. No, actually, that is Satoshi. Yeah. <laughs> He's cool. Australian, so I don't know. That's all I know. I know nothing else. Excellent. Mirza, thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, if you haven't already seen Mirza's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page, or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ, or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and our newly launched research newsletter, uh, which includes links to all of the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review on whichever streaming platform you're using. And if you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Tally Spear with support from Melee Mountford, Eva Lila, and Kate Light. New episodes will be coming out fortnightly-ish, and in the meantime, stay safe.